forgiveness, in, in addition to everything else, is the gateway to a bigger life. A life that we came here to live, that God, however you understand God, puts you on this planet to experience. And sometimes the inaction, not being willing to forgive someone or something, is what gets in the way of us fulfilling our greatest potential. Giving one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Every once in a while in life, you get these major hugs from above. It's like a God wink, or in Hebrew, we call it Hashkacha Pratis, or divine intervention. A few months ago, I as usual, was on a hike and talking to strangers. And this name came up that I hadn't talked about in such a long time. And all of a sudden, I was in touch with that person later that day, even though I hadn't seen or heard or talked about them in 30 years. Getting to speak to Scott Freed on Zoom in real life, in real time, felt like one of those moments, those hugs from above. And I think you'll be pleased to hear all the wisdom that this spiritual warrior has to share with the world. And I take the lessons that he shared with me on into my life. And it's so cool when you have a powerfully moving spiritual experience and then 30 years later, you align, your path aligns with the person who said those things to you and you you get a chance to hug them back. And even through Zoom, you can hug people spiritually. So this is that hug, and I hope that you get a lot out of it. Uh, I am just so really blown away by how Scott talks about embracing your power. And it's funny because recently I took a trip to Sedona and I kept pulling this card saying, own your power more. And so I thought when we recorded this episode a few months ago that he was teaching me this, this, and that. And meanwhile, there was a whole other story at play. And because of the tragic events of October 7th and the aftermath of that, I I just got busy and, and what was supposed to be just a few months uh, turned into a few more. So uh, this recording took place before October 7th. And yet so much of the spiritual wisdom that Scott gives over in this episode is relatable to what a lot of people are growing through right now. So I hope it adds a a little bit of holding and cherishing to your own heart. And if you like it, as usual, share it with somebody else. Without further ado, Scott Freed. 96 or 97 is when I met you. I still can't remember the exact, maybe you could tell me. (laughs) And so that's 2006, 16. So it's almost been 30 years since I saw you. I've only met you once in person. And... I just want to recap the story where you begin, because I think it's such a, I love talking about this thing called synchronicity, or in Hebrew, we would say hashkaka process, where you're talking about something, and then all of a sudden you see it somehow, or feel it, or someone brings it up later that has nothing to do with that conversation. I was in West Hollywood taking a hike. I ran into this gorgeous couple, young male couple, they're in their 20s, and they looked so in love, And we started talking about love 
and all forms of it. And out of the blue, I brought you up and I said, I once heard this incredible speaker. I was 19 at the time and he just blew me away. And I was, I, I, I could feel how vulnerable he was. And they, I shared with them some of the things that you talked about that day and they were blown away all over again. And then that night I came back to my apartment and was on Instagram scrolling as we do. And I saw Mary Williamson's channel and I saw you speaking. I mean, it was the first thing I saw on my phone. And I just think that is crazy because I looked at your face and I heard your the sound of your voice. I'm really into listening and voices because I do voiceover. And I thought, there's no way this is that man. That there's no way. I mean, he looks the same. He hasn't aged. It's been like 30 years. And then the sound of your voice, like immediately plugged me back into that moment and how moved I was by what you had to say. So I can't wait to get into all of that, but I just thought how beautiful to share that story. It was B'nai Torah in Boca Raton, Florida. Oh, yeah. And Rabbi Dan Wolpe mm-hmm. was the assistant rabbi. What you didn't know about me a few nights before, I had a big breakdown and I drove my mom's Volvo to that synagogue and begged the rabbi, Dan, to help me find my relationship with God because I didn't have one. And I told him that he screwed up. And he's like, I don't even know who you are. I, you know, you came here 10 years ago when you were a little kid and you dropped out of Hebrew school. And I wasn't even like a, a rabbi yet. And I was angry at him and screaming at him and crying. And my parents are going through a messy divorce. My mom was suicidal. And he said, I want you to come back and work here. And that was my first day on the job. I was working with Kadima and we walked into your lecture. So you helped me get connected to God. Uh, okay. I want to go back. Um, you you were angry with him because... He, I was angry with God and Jesus. I didn't know who he was. I, it was just meeting. And I was angry got with him it. introducing me to the main rabbi. I was like, I have to talk to the assistant rabbi? What, what's an assistant? Ah. <laughs> you can't even get closer to the top, right? And what were you angry about? I, I love this. This is my my interview. I know, but, I'm, but you, this is your story. And I'm, I want to understand what it was that helped... Um, you'd be available to hearing whatever I had, whatever I had to say in 97. Oh my gosh, so many things. I was angry that my dad cheated on and I just found out. I was angry that I had to leave NYU. I was at Tisch School of the Arts and my dad said, you know, when I was a senior in high school, pick any school. And I went on a plane with him to Northwestern and DePaul and I got scholarships for acting at all these different schools. And we picked NYU because it was in the city. And I really wanted to be an actor like Helen Hunt and Sandra Bullock. I said, Dad, I want to go to NYU. I know it's more expensive. He said, don't worry, pick anything. I can, I can afford any of these schools. And I went, okay. And in the middle of my freshman year, he said, I am having a nervous breakdown. And I just can't afford to send you anywhere. I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave. Yeah. And it was devastating because my whole life, that was my religion, the theater. There was no spiritual life. There was no praying. So to take that away from me was devastating. It was my whole identity. And uh, he, did more than, he took more than that. And that's huge because I went to NYU, Tisch School of the Arts, before it was the Tisch, before they had the Tisch money. But I, he took more than just that amazing experience away from you. He took away his integrity. He showed you his absence of integrity. He took away your trust. Yeah. Which I suspect, sorry for getting too personal, um, he did many times before, or at least a few times before. That doesn't just show itself that way. That's a characteristic that stays with us through life. 
Integrity is something that we have to really work at all the time. So this might not have been the first time, but it was a huge takeaway. It, it actually was, Scott, the first time in this way, because the one thing I could always count on my father for, things, scholarships, the award, yep. he always was there at every show and, and yep. every award show that I was at as a kid. And I was at a lot of them because I, I wanted his approval. So it was devastating. But it, I mean, so many blessings came out of leaving NYU and, and having to start over and not be in the path that all my friends were in. So anyway... And those blessings that came out of you leaving NYU were because of you, because of your openness and a willing, a willingness to receive, to see the blessings, right? There's this great prayer that I'm working with, with all my, and all my talks these days, which is, it's a simple, we all know the prayer, um, olamo, that such things exist in this world. Thank you, God, that such things as that the Olamo are in your world. But the question we have to ask ourselves, and you did this, mm-hmm. you saw the blessing in the breaking and the leaving and the and the and the change of life and the opening to something new. What's the this? What's the this and the in the blessing that we're we're asked? What is the what is but we're so grateful for this in your world? Most people say the butterflies, the sunny day, the 4.0, the good hair day, the love in my life, the couple on the path who seemed so beautiful when I ran into them and talked about you. That's where most of our minds go. But the truth is, when we're saying this prayer, which is a pretty dangerous prayer, because it, it, it incorporates everything, that such things as this exist in your world. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to not only have been removed from a really great program at NYU, but my willingness, my open eyes, my open heartedness that allowed me to see the blessing in this and receive the gifts and therefore have the life that I've got. Hmm. that's on you so go one step further back sorry further back <clears throat> when i asked you the question where why when you went to the rabbi and said i'm angry at god yeah why were you angry at god when it was your dad who took you out of school beautiful well i didn't know that god was all loving had 72 names that mostly were about Everything you said, I had no training. We were we were Mel Brooks movies and Bagel Juice and uh, maybe a high around your neck. You know, there was that I didn't even know Shabbat was Saturday. I thought it was just Friday night. And we never had Shabbat dinner. We only had it at my grandma's like three times. So yeah, I mean, there was a dearth and a thirst that I would later find, uh, thank God, and you know, 20 something years of, of study and living and working and teaching in Israel. I mean. I'm so, so grateful for so many things in my life. The biggest one is learning five years later after this Rabbi Dan, meeting Rabbi Aaron and learning how God is love. He's like a hippie rabbi. My, my, my Rav is like a hippie rabbi. And he, many times I've wanted to leave Judaism and run to Buddhism or what, and I am like a Jubu, but it was that rabbi that I, I could only get to, you know, through Rabbi Dan who started the path. Um, and by the way, the day before I met you, when I ran into him and I and I yelled at him and screamed and cried in his office and and told him he wasn't good enough because he was just an assistant rabbi, I, I take those words back. Um, he dared me to talk to God like God was my best friend that night outside, like Abraham. And I was like, "Who's Abraham? Why? How would I talk to God? I don't speak Hebrew. I can't open a seder. I don't know what that means." He said, "You don't have to use a seder." I said, "No, that's how Christians pray. Jews don't pray like that." He said. Jews invented that. It's called he's supposed to do it. And, you know, I had no idea. So 
I thank him from my kishkas that he dared me with that homework assignment because talking to God, I've never shut up. That's all I do is talk to God. Right. So you were angry at the idea of this God that was somehow indoctrinated or taught to you. It was that your father's God or the God of your neighborhood and the way that they worship God that was only on Friday night, not full 24 hours of Shabbos and Saturday sundown. So it was the anger at this idea of this God, which if we break it down even further, is not even so much anger at God, but the anger at what you've been taught and what you haven't been taught. It's all ego. Yeah, 100%. So now you, my sweet bird who never ages. You look look even younger today than you did when I met you. If you get close enough, you can see all the crow's feet and the gray beard. It's all there. You're adorable. You're absolutely adorable. Um, So what led you to start? I mean, I kind of know the answer because I remember hearing you say it, but what what really led you to start speaking in, in synagogues uh, right after the AIDS crisis? Like, what what was it about that that made you? So it was the it was the height of the AIDS crisis at a time when it was actually a crisis, right? And sure. uh, it was I started in '92, which is the the year most of people really was the 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 crest of the wave that started to crash and hit the shore meaning it kind of started to get under control in 1995 because of the advent of the uh, highly active antiretroviral therapy in 95 by the FDA. So it was just 92 and that would be the height. And then that year, that's when I lost most of my friends of the 135 friends of mine who died of AIDS. Most of them died in the year 92. But what got me started doing it was really just an accident. I was, well, it's a great story, though. So I was a, I was sort of an ambulance chaser, Barb. I, I was, I was uh, infected with HIV in 1987, and um, I was reading the Newsday. I don't even think it's published anymore in Long Island, in New York City. And I was just reading through it on a boring day and a temp job, filling the time. And I saw an obituary about a young man who had died of AIDS, and in his obituary, it talked about how he had volunteered with the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, JBFCS, in New York City through the Jewish Federation. And uh, he was a, he would tell his story of living with HIV. So, and it was interviewed, in, in the obituary it was an interview and a quote by this guy who was from JBFCS. So like an ambulance chaser, I called him and said, hi, I just read this obituary about this guy who died of AIDS and he used to speak for you and it looks like you need a new speaker. Would you... Um, be interested in having me speak. I'm Jewish. He wasn't. I have HIV uh, and he, I'm alive and he's not, which I was such an ambulance chaser. I wanted to do what this guy did. So really, I owe my entire career to this man's obituary. Aww. So Dr. Bob, his name is Bob Zaloni. He brought me in and I started doing some talks around this city, New York City, to Jewish organizations, mostly Jewish social workers who were working with uh, people living through the crisis at the time dying from AIDS as well. And uh, one of the places I was invited was to Jersey, to USY. And I thought, oh, USY, I knew USY. I did when I was a kid, United Center God Youth. I was the rel ed, religious educator in my region. So I accepted it for like a hundred bucks and I didn't know what to charge and was happy to be able to talk about myself. I walked into the conference room where I thought I was going to be speaking and there were over a thousand chairs. And I, I turned to the person who hired me and I said, is this international convention? 
Because I thought it was like 20 people in New Jersey. And he said, yeah, this is international convention. This is IC. And the first thing I thought was, I should have charged you more money. I mean, there's 1,300 chairs. But I stood up on the stage and I talked about how my boyfriend, Michael, was dying of AIDS at the time. And he did die a year, a year later. How uh, I'm living with HIV. And it was pretty intense. And I cried a lot. It was a time in the world where none of us knew who was going to survive. And myself included, certainly didn't know if I would survive. And here I am 35 years later. But when I was at the international convention, those seats were filled with 1300 people. And also, also many of them were the advisors of their individual synagogues from around the country. And my career just took off. And that in that room was a, a, a an youth worker who I'm still friendly with to this day from B'nai Torah, your synagogue. My career started going from synagogue to synagogue, mostly in, in South Florida and then all over the country and then all over the world. Was that your first speaking gig? That was in the top 20, top 25. What I remember the most about what you said, and I never forgot it, made me feel better about my own choices, even though I'm only 19. I think you were, you're a few years older than me. 20. I was 28. You said for my something along the lines of I, I didn't find the love for myself. I was in a lot of pain. And so I threw myself into multiple situations physically with people to find love. Yeah, let's just get real specific because I'm so honored that you remember so much of it. But uh, I need to be clear on one thing. Please. I didn't, tell my, I didn't feel here's what it was. Okay. I I loved myself. And I loved my life and I loved my dreams, uh, my theater background that I did. I did finish NYU. I didn't get taken out, right? I can tell you either way, it ends the way, here we are. It ends this way, right? We'd meet each other eventually. But uh, I, what I wasn't in love with was my secrets, were my secrets, my secret life. And of those secrets, there were a few. Number one was I didn't believe in the God of my fathers, the one that you were also railing against, because that was a construct that just wasn't going to work for, I judged it and still do, as a construct that just, I didn't, just couldn't do that. So I too railed against that God. Number two, I I was, uh, I hated the fact that I, my, I was afraid that I was gay. In 1992, when there were no gay straight alliances. There was no GSA. Those letters weren't put together back then for mm-hmm. schools to have. And there was no, and there was no T in the LGBTQ T. There's no Q. It was Q was 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 queer as a pejorative term. It was L and it was G. It was lesbian, it was gay. And I didn't want to be the G. But the main secret that I hated about myself was I thought I was the only one who had secrets. Because in my secrets, I had to also be unique. So it wasn't that I didn't love myself. I did. And I say this to your audience because when people say they, they don't love themselves, they don't love themselves, I think it's a dangerous expression. And it's not true. It's such a generalized expression. There are always times and things about ourselves that we love. Some of it's just having a good hair day, good hair. Some of us love the fact that we um, are good at cooking a great lasagna. There are things about our lives and ourselves that we love. We're in or they're in makes the, the, the problem. The problem isn't that we don't love ourselves. The problem is that we can't make sense of the contradiction of loving some things about ourselves, one or two things about our lives, in with all the other things that we don't. Contradiction that makes us 
want to have the, go to the darker place and the I am not enough and I'm not lovable and then other all the the long list of negative organizing principles that we heard as kids and including that God will smite you if you don't you know eat uh, matzah on Passover etc. It's those negative organizing principles that don't seem to comport nicely with the other things like I, I I'm good at throwing a football or I can sing like no one's business. or I'm really, really good at braiding my best friend's hair. There are things that we love about ourselves that don't mix with the things that we don't. So that's number one. Number two, because I want to be careful that we, in this generation, Gen Z, we make these blanket statements that, you know, life sucks. And that's not true. It becomes a generalization. Number two, I didn't have a lot of sexual experiences. I didn't then experience that sense of not loving myself by fooling around. I had condomless sex with only one person and I got infected my first time not using a condom. It wasn't acting out and having lots of different promiscuous activity. And I'm not here to judge people who do. I want you to hear that I said condomless sex. I didn't say unprotected and I didn't say unsafe because now in our world today, those are the words we use when you heard me speak in the 90s and the 2000s. But to say that it was unprotected is really nobody's business, right? It's stigmatizing. Unprotected emotionally or physically? Yes, physically it was un. Empirically, it was unprotected without a condom, but it's really nobody else to say other than myself whether I felt protected or not emotionally or to call it unsafe. Unsafe unsafe is, a, is really an emotional term. And yes, it was unsafe emotionally. Sometimes people have unsafe emotional sex while using a condom for safer sex. So the term is simply now condomless sex. So to just clarify, it was one time with one guy, my first time while I didn't love my secrets, but there are other things about me that I did. Does that make sense? Yes, I think I must have projected or heard it wrong, or maybe at the time you were describing it. Well, maybe that's how I said it back then, and because it's 30 years ago. So maybe I've just gotten more specific and sharpened my message. And I have to say, and this may not mean so much to you, but it's, it's my story. At that point, I had fooled around just like kissing and touching a little bit, uh, with with a few men, and um, I remember men, boys, whatever. I was nineteen, and I remember between the ages of twelve and nineteen, I had I remember counting like how many people I had like fooled around with, and it was around that time that I kind of stopped because I wanted to remain a virgin until I fell in love. It was some that not till marriage, but it was something my mom had like instilled in me. Like my parents made took all the excitement away. They'd be like, "You want to do drugs? Fine, do them here. You want to have sex? Do it, but do it when you're in love." And they made it so clear to me, even though they gave me lots of horrible things to deal with as a kid. There was this idea that that is something you save for being in love. And when you said that in the most beautiful, I mean, you really touched my heart. I think you touched. There was not a no one was speaking. We were all like this on the edge of our chair, but you had tears in your eyes. And I remember walking out of there and just feeling so moved that the most important thing for me that I got from what you said 30 years ago was when you're going to be intimate with someone, you, you bring your whole self and you feel that it is safe, regardless of whether you were or you weren't. That is the biggest lesson I got. That, that when you spend time with someone physically, emotionally, you show up fully. 
And I have to tell you, you were one of those teachers along the way that you, you may like this, you may not like this, but I just wrote a book. And part of what the book talks about is, is saving yourself for the intimacy of the people that matter. And I am, I do practice abstinence, um, not, not because of like the rules or this or that. It's just, I want my intimate moment to be my intimate moments to be something that, that matter. And, um, and I just want to thank you for that. I appreciate that you remember that. And I'm glad that it stuck with you and it was useful to you and it still is. And I'm here to say three decades later, you're welcome. <laughs> I just want to give you an opportunity to look at it, the same sentence in a different way. Yeah, you bring your full self to an intimate encounter. But if you are, again, for your listeners who do believe in the value, that there is value in just having a random hookup, that is the currency for a lot of people. So I want to be able to include them. I want them to feel welcome and included in this conversation. It would mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people, right? It would mean that when you're having an encounter, physical, sexual, romantic, otherwise encounter with someone that you feel completely emotionally safe with, then you are going to bring your full self to the encounter. And one of the ways in which you know you're not safe emotionally is if you're trying to bring your full self and it's not happening. One of the things I've been doing lately is giving lectures on consent and rape and college on college campuses and sometimes in high school at age level as well. And, and again, it's a trigger word for a lot of people. What I've discovered is that with many of the young women and some men as well, they've told me privately that in the moments they felt uncomfortable, they weren't able to show their full selves, to bring their full selves with the intention of bringing their full self. In those moments when you can't, that's a time to be able to say to yourself, huh, you know what? I thought he was, I thought she was, I thought they were going to be the right one for me to go the distance emotionally, physically, to really experience the interpersonal oneness, etc." But I'm not feeling it. And it's important to be able to check in with yourself when you're naked physically and to be able to notice that you're not being naked emotionally. If you find yourself waiting and then doing it, but then realize when you've finally done it, you're not there. That's an indication that you're not emotionally safe and that consent may have not been heard. Your consent, your absence of consent, your unwillingness to do something was not recognized. And your body is saying to you, huh, I'm, I'm not in this. But most people that I've spoken to in college age level, when that happens, a don't know, don't know it's happening, so they just keep on having sex and then regret it later, or B are drunk so or inebriated or or high or both, so they don't know that it's happening and regret it later, or C know it's happening and just say to themselves, "Let's just get this over with. I'll I'll be I'll be it'll be fine tomorrow. I'll just I just got to get through this, and I don't know how to speak up on my own behalf." To which I say to those, and I'm going to just take advantage of this opportunity while I'm with you on the on this podcast because I've started this is to offer you them these uh, ideas when you want to withdraw your consent when you've given it when your hell yeah becomes a hell no. Mm -hmm. 
it's really important to be able to withdraw your consent halfway through the sex act to say, well, this was great, but I'm done. I've, I've, I don't want to do it. But so most people don't know how to, many people don't know how to withdraw that consent once given, but now changed, right? So the way you do it, I recommend, I educate, I instruct is to have your um, five word sentence, no more than five, less will do, but no more than five words and mm -hmm. practice them all the time. Mm -hmm. Have two of them in your back pocket. Now, obviously you're naked in the moment, but your back pocket, as it were, metaphorically, something like, I believe I said no. Something like, this doesn't feel right anymore. Something like, something here just isn't working. Mm -hmm. Five word sentence, no more than five could be less like, no, I said no, I'm leaving. I'm not into it, but it can't be more than five words. And it's got to be a phrase that you go into every random and even not random sexual encounter with. So if you're lying there underneath the weight of somebody's body and you're thinking, I don't like this anymore. Yeah. I did six minutes ago, but now I don't, I'm done. You've got your defense. You've got your tool and your arsenal of words to be able to say, I'm out of here. Why five words or less? Because once you get to the sixth or seventh word, you've begun the art of negotiating. Yeah. A seven, eight word sentence can be responded with, but wait a minute, I heard you and you said this and I was getting the sense that, but five words or less, there's no negotiation. Mm -hmm. That's when you reach for your clothes and leave. Well, that's when you sit up and say, listen, I don't want to leave. I do want to do this, but I don't want to do that, but we're good. I just don't want to do that. You call the shots, but with the five words or less. So I think I've said more than you expected me to say, but. No, I love it. It's such a powerful tool. And I had no idea that was going to come up. I had a feeling that you were going to give me some nuggets of wisdom beyond what I was going to ask you, but thank you. That is powerful and so important and so relatable and so not talked about today. You knew this was coming. What is your biggest moment of forgiveness? <laughs> Obviously the one that I would, I've always gone with when it comes to forgiveness is forgiving myself for um, letting myself be in a situation, a scenario in 1987 where I got myself infected with HIV, but that was 35 years ago. And so I'm not going to give you that answer because I've moved past that forgiveness and I have forgiven myself and the man from whom I got the virus. And notice I didn't say the man who infected me because I was a participant in the act right? This was not coercion. This is not the absence of consent. It's a different conversation from the one I just had with you. I was a participant that didn't use a condom and didn't demand that he use a condom. So I say that from the man from whom I got infected, right? No victimization here. He infected me. That's not what happened. And so that forgiveness of myself and of him who knew he had the virus when he gave me his phone number, but didn't tell me and then died of AIDS a few years later, that forgiveness has been done because in the end, it doesn't really matter who it was or what it was. It's the act of forgiving. So the story of forgiveness I'll give you right now is the example, and then I'll tell you what I learned from it, what we learn, what we can learn from forgiveness at all, right? Which is the point of the question, not the moment that you forgave, but why? What's the forgiveness about? So it was three years ago, I got a puppy, a dog in the, who you just heard in the background, in the pandemic when things got really bad, you know, as a public speaker. So I lost my business as a public speaker because there was no more public. There was just Zoom. And so I got a puppy, I think it was six months. I went to get him uh, neutered because that's what you have to do in New York City to get your dog license. And it was the right thing to do. And so I went to get him neutered and he came out of the office. And again, I couldn't go in because it was COVID times. So I had to wait in the parking lot for them to bring him to me. And he was had the cone and he had um, a little IV 
the bandage and he was shivering and shaking and I was heartbroken and they picked him up and put him in my arms, shaking so much. And the second he realized whose arms he was in, the shivering stopped. And it was that moment when I said to myself, I've got a problem here. He loves me that much that I've got that much power. Nurses didn't, the doctor didn't, but it was in my arms that he was calmed. I realized what I'd gotten myself into, a lifelong relationship where I will be taking care of this creature for another 15, God willing, 15, 16 years or the length of his life. And it was that moment that I realized the gravity, the burden, the brilliant gift of being a puppy owner. And the forgiveness that I offered was forgiving myself for waiting so long for this opportunity, for thinking I couldn't do it. I'm not qualified. I'm not, I don't have enough free time. I don't, I don't know how to do it. I, in that moment, after when he calmed down within a split second, I realized how much he leans on me for safety. I forgave myself after I realized the burden of, wow, what am I got myself into for not doing this sooner? The point of forgiveness, among many other things, right? But I suspect this is not one that many answer people give is how, how can I learn to be a more compassionate, bigger person in the universe by forgiving? The forgiveness isn't only, and it usually is about uh, setting my heart free so I'm not holding a grudge for the rest of my life or letting the person for whom I'm forgiving know that I've forgiven them so that they don't have to carry the burden of having hurt me throughout their lives. And there's a law in Judaism. What do you do? How do you forgive somebody if they've already died, right? So it's not only that they're carrying the burden. It's a, the, One of the other things that comes from forgiveness is like you said about with, your, with NYU, all the blessings that come after the action from which I have to create a, a forgiveness principle. You having to forgive your father, or at least the moment of that, that you were taken out of school, opened you up to so many other opportunities for which you are so grateful and consider to be blessings. Forgiveness, in, in addition to everything else, the gateway to a bigger life. A life that we came here to live, that God, however you understand God, the God of your understanding, not your parents' understanding or your rabbi's understanding or your society's understanding or the, your understanding of that higher power, that that God puts you on this planet to experience. And sometimes the, uh, the inaction, not being willing to forgive someone or something is what gets in the way of us fulfilling our greatest potential, mm. doing what we came here to do. It, not so much as what was the great thing that helped me to forgive or what was the thing I forgave, but the act itself, which must be daily, not once a year on Yom Kippur is the gates closing during the Ni'ilah service. That's only there so that we can be reminded to do this all the time. So forgiveness is an opportunity to make, to make us larger, yeah. to make us bigger, yeah. to make us closer to godliness, that which we came here to be. There's a great... Quote by Marianne Williamson, whom you saw me doing a public service announcement for. She was my HIV facilitator. Marianne Williamson came into my life in 1988. I got a 
infected in 87. And the first thing I did six months later after I had shingles from the shock and the stress of 24 years old with shingles from getting this diagnosis and then coming to terms with having to do something about, because the first time I got the news, I was like, I'm going to deal with this later. I'm in the middle of my life right now. And then six months later, the shingles came out and I had no choice. I had to deal with it. And then I went to a support group where Marianne Williamson was facilitating and she got her start doing work in the HIV community with gay men, but a lot of straight women too, friends who died of AIDS and Jewish women as well who died of AIDS. And so she became my HIV support facilitator. And years later, four years ago, when she was running for president the first time in the United States, there was a lot of bad press she was getting and it was incorrect press and it still is. I don't even want to repeat it, but she was saying things about not taking your meds and not believing in vaccines and all that stuff. And she never said that. So I did a PSA on her behalf to let her know and her followers know more than the followers, the people who don't believe in her know that she made us consider the the science. It wasn't all just about love and it wasn't all just about changing your mindset and course in miracles. It was about taking your medicine when you need to take your medicine. And she said many other things to me, including this one great great nugget about forgiveness for 20 seconds every single day forgive everyone everything forgive everyone everything for 20 seconds of every day close your eyes at the end of the day and just forgive everyone everything and then open your eyes and if you would you can pick up your grudges go back about your day the point being forgiveness is a muscle The action of forgiving is a muscle that must be used. If you don't go to the gym for two months, you're going to start to atrophy and it's going to be harder when you go back. If you only forgive once a year in Yom Kippur, it's going to be harder to do it the next year because you haven't done it for a full year. If you do it 20 seconds of every day, everyone, everything, you get into the act of learning to have a softer heart and being open in a muscular, emotionally muscular way to being a bigger person, yeah. having the gateway to your largeness, your enoughness. Now, there's a great quote from my friend who died of AIDS many years ago. He came into the support group where Marianne was facilitating, and he raised his hand and he said, I now have a diagnosis of AIDS, cancer-related HIV AIDS. And I always thought if I were to get an AIDS diagnosis, I thought it would make me bigger. But now that I have the diagnosis of AIDS. What I've come to understand is that AIDS didn't make me bigger. AIDS simply showed me how big I've always been. I've always been this big. I just didn't know it. But I say this to you and to your listeners, it doesn't require a diagnosis of AIDS or cancer or the death of a a beloved or some what we consider to be under the category of crisis for you to realize how big you are. All you have to do is forgive and do it as an act on a daily basis so that you can cross the threshold into the realm of your largeness, your more than enoughness. Mm -hmm. To know that you've always been this big, it requires a few things. One, forgiveness. Two, acceptance of who you are and things as they are. My friend Robert Levitan, who died of uh, pancreatic cancer a few years ago, living with HIV for decades, but then dies of pancreatic cancer unrelated to HIV, used to say, acceptance. What a beautiful word. We were taught acceptance as children, Barb. Mm -hmm. We were taught everywhere in this world, we were all, well, most of us have heard that expression, that nursery rhyme, Row your boat gently down the stream, merrily. Life is but a dream. That is acceptance. 
but we get to be young adults. And then we go to the synagogue and our parents are fighting and we go to the assistant rabbi and say, mm-hmm. I don't believe in your God. I don't accept your God. I don't accept the terms that life has given me, but we were taught as four-year-olds, but life is but a dream. Merrily row your boat. Row your boat merrily, which is what the rabbi was trying to say to you. Why don't you come back? Let me give you another oar to help you row, right? So the goal here is not only forgiveness, but it's to, it's to it's be in a state of acceptance as much as possible. Ah, now this, we would say in our support group. Ah, now this. Very Buddhist. Yeah. This is what's next. Ah, now this, said the Buddha. And so when we can get to a place of accepting life on life's terms and knowing that this is all part of, as Ram Dass would say, grist for the mill, that along with forgiveness helps us understand our largeness. You know, I'm in Atlanta for a few months and I'm going to Ebenezer Baptist Church. Nice Jewish boy going to beautiful Baptist <laughs> Sunday where they end their, they end their, uh, their, 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 their service with a, with a beautiful song that we don't sing in Judaism. We don't, anywhere in the Judaism, I've never seen this expression. And oh, the, the lyrics are, Come on. Right, maybe you can find it for me. The lyrics are, I'll pray for you and you'll pray for me. You are important to me. I need you to survive. Oh, I sang that in a synagogue and it's on my YouTube channel with a black woman on MLK Chavez at the Harlem Jewish Center. I love that song. Beautiful. Now, if you were to add this to the forgiveness and the acceptance, number three, I need you to survive. You need me. I need you to survive. I, it sounds like a very Manilow tune. I know that tune very well. And I sang it in the Harlem JCC. Okay, that's great. What would life be like? What would the world be like? Went up to people and before we interfaced with them and said, nice to see you. How are you doing? Oh, listen, I, I, but if with our hearts, we said to each other strangers on a bus, I need you to survive. Oof. And then how you doing? Hey, can I, can I, excuse me, can you pass the salt? Mm-hmm. But we started it silently with, I need you to survive. Mm-hmm. If we could do that with a little bit of acceptance as things as of things as they are, and knowing that forgiveness is the gateway to a larger life for us, not maybe for the other person, but for us, we would then be able to say what that friend of mine said in the support group when he got his diagnosis. AIDS mm-hmm. didn't make me bigger. It only showed me how big I've always been. You want to live a big life? Forgive. You want to live a big life? You want to be big in this life? Accept. You want to know that you've always been this big? See people as the as the answer to their prayer because most people are praying all the time. They're longing for something. To me, longing for something is the same thing as praying. So when a person is longing for understanding, longing for the disease to go away, sense of naivete to come back in life, longing for connection, longing for an absence to this, that taking away this sense of loneliness and existential angst in society. That's a prayer. And if we were to go up to somebody silently with our heart and say, I need you to survive. Hey, could you pass the salt or nice to meet you? Um, is this seat taken? If we would say that first with our hearts, what we then become is the answer to that person's prayer, I need to be understood. And so if that's the case, we're pretty big. <laughs> Make sense? Yes, you make so much sense. I'm 
spelling here. My eyes have not stopped watering and crying from your, you know, Shlomo Karlbach. I'm sure you heard, you've heard this many times because you seem like a Karlbachian type, but words that come from the heart enter another person's heart. And my heart is so full just listening to you once again, almost 30 years later, you're just like such a special soul and I'm so glad you didn't give up on yourself and on love and on sharing love with people so glad you found Marianne I think what she did for the LGBT community is just so overlooked and people have you know there's so many people have no idea what she did which makes it an even bigger chesed um and what she continues to do but I'm just so blown away by your forgiveness your sense of forgiveness and how took that 20 seconds into your life you know I had a feeling I'd be moved by this conversation but I'm very moved I'm sure our listeners will be as well I can't wait to see what comes next for you if you had a microphone that everyone in the world could hear just for a second what's one tool for living a life of freedom you would you would like to give to people this is new thing happening in the world this different communities where there are a lot of teenagers who are triggered easily in society right now. A lot of Gen Zers who are telling me when I speak and others as well, that they need a trigger warning. Before you speak, if you're gonna talk about eating disorders or self-harm or suicidal ideation, or say the word rape, that you warn me that you're gonna do that. And I didn't do that in this podcast, nor will I ever do that. For people who are easily triggered, the tool that you can use for freedom is the ability to understand that we are not that fragile. When we ask for a trigger warning or content warning, perpetuating the belief in our psyche is that I, I'm too fragile. I can't handle the word rape. I had a student at a, at a college I was teaching at who said, you know, please don't talk about vehicular manslaughter. And she kept saying to me, I have a cut by vehicular manslaughter. I, I can't take those words. To which I said to her, yeah, you can. You're, you're stronger than you think. You're stronger than you think. You had enough chutzpah to tell me not to say it. That's a strong person. You can handle it. I refuse to allow a person to enable themselves or believe or support in themselves in this belief that they're that fragile. There's a different way to communicate your feelings rather than making them about you not being able to handle something or a panic attack or even get angry at the other person. There are ways to do it that are simply saying, here's what works for me, here's what doesn't work for me, but I don't need you to change. And I don't need you to apologize. And I don't need you to explain. I just wanna speak my truth. And my truth is that I don't like these words and I need a trigger warning, but I get that I may not get what I want. Repeat after me. This is what I want, but I know I may not get it. This is what I want, but I, I know I may not get it. We don't always get what we want in this world. We get to want what we want. We don't get to make all the rules. We don't get to rewrite all the rules. We don't get to throw a fit because we don't like the rules. We don't, it's, we can, but it's not very stylish. In <laughs> so we can go around the world saying, I, 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 this is my want, and literally out loud, out loud, not inside, internally, like the last example. Alan, this is my want, knowing I may not get it. We would free ourselves of potential possibility of having been getting wounded by the world and society, and just to know that who we are in this world is okay, even if we don't get what we want. Mm. Acceptance. I love that. Also, I think what you're saying in a 
Jewish context, I, I didn't always get what I wanted, but I got what I needed. Like that to me, that, oh, I, I see. there's a deeper one, which I study the Musser movement by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, Olav Shalom. One of his key points is Dan the which means judge every person in front of you, right? With a good eye. In other words, on the side of merit, look for the good. You can always find the bad. My grandma used to say, you can always find the bad. You got to look for the good. It doesn't mean that if a terrorist, God forbid, is coming at us with a with a with a rifle, that we just go, oh, he means well. But Byron Katie, Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, people that I follow for the intricacies of how to communicate in life, Byron Katie always says, you should be able to have a conversation with any person at any time for whatever reason. And I believe her when she says it because this woman to me, comes at this world with such a love for all humanity in that same vein of Marion Williamson, which is forgive everyone, everything. If we could all be on that level. And so that helps me. And when I do that, you know, like when we started this call, I have a practice that I sometimes give to people. If I didn't have that inside of me and my mom really instilled in me, like, all right, so like it didn't go the way you wanted or you had this idea that I... You know, there's some people that that may have reacted differently, right? But I look at every person, I try at least. Um, usually I'm in a pretty good mood, but is what 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 are they coming from? What is their side of the story? Because it's easy for me to push my agenda and what I want, but if I can have a little bit of space for, oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it, and that's okay. It didn't necessarily go the way I wanted it to, but I know this person only means me well. If we all left our houses every morning thinking everyone on the street means well for me, and like you said before so beautifully, I need them to survive, I don't see how we could have war. Right, but except not every person means you well. So then how do you apply that beautiful principle by Byron Katie? Someone taught those people that everyone doesn't mean well. Wording is really important. Yeah. Taught them. Not that everyone doesn't mean well. Some people don't mean well. Yeah. Words are really important. And the principles of nonviolence with Dr. King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to have the civil rights movement take off at all in the 1960s, 50s. Number three is understand from a nonviolent perspective that every oppressor has been oppressed. For sure. And when we practice nonviolence, we're trying to love the part in them that never got loved. Exactly. Because they've been oppressed. Every victim, has, as it were, victims of victims. Every bully has a bully. So I may not always get what I want, but this is my want knowing I may not get it. It's a personal responsibility for my stuff. Here are my wants. I have a lot of personal power, but it, there's, a, there's a limit to it. But I get to want it. And I get to state that. I love it. And whatever comes before to me in this moment is for me. I can take the things that didn't go well for me in this moment that I thought I wanted, and I can see the beauty and the blessings, like you said. Everything that comes to me is only for me if I choose to see it as such. It may not be for me if I ignore it. It puts the power back in your hands. It's not some spiritual thing that God is handing you a lifeboat. No, it's God is handing you a lifeboat, but you're the one that is willing to take it. Love it. And that gives you back your personal power. I heard you compliment me and say 30 years later, I still I still got it. And I can make you cry and you're still available to it. And to which I say thank you. And I also add, I am your reflection. I'm holding up a mirror to you. That which you see in me, that which you see 
and the other amazing names you mentioned, Marianne Williamson and Deepak Chopra and Byron Katie, they're holding up a mirror to your reflection. You spot it, you got it. That which you see is because of the beauty. Your beauty you see in me is because of the beauty that's in you. I'm only helping you see it. So thank you for your kind words. Please own some of them to be true for you as well. I do. I, I receive your compliment. And how do we get in touch with you? How do we buy the things that you wrote, that you're creating? We we just want to support you. So tell us all the things. My website is uh, scottfried.com, S-C-O-T-T-F-R-I-E-D.com. And uh, I'm at scott at scottfried.com is my email address. Okay. So we can hire you to speak. And thank you so much for being here. You are such a light. I feel so lucky to have reconnected with you. I want to thank God for connecting me to you again and Marianne. I heard this from one of my teachers when I would say, I want to thank God, or I want to bless you, or I want to thank you, right? This great teacher of mine turned to me and said, take out the want and just bless. I bless you. I thank God. I bless you. I thank you. Because again, it puts us back in the present tense where our power lies. I want to thank God is something I'm going to add to my list of things I'm going to do. I thank God is presently happening right here and now. And we're in the seat of power when we do that. Yes, I love how powerful you are. I bless you that you should continue on this incredible path (laughs) of power and light up all the lights that get to hear you speak. That's what I give you a blessing for. Thank you very much. Great to see you after all these years. Okay, so here's some nuggets of wisdom from the great Scott Freed. How loving is he that he spent the first three minutes of this interview interviewing me? (laughs) trying to help me. You can tell he's not just a great orator, but he also is a great coach and friend and just somebody who wants to serve and heal people. Scott was once afraid of his own secrets. Ever feel like that yourself? He was afraid that he could never love some of the things about himself, but it's in the embracing of all of that and just getting that we're complicated and that life is full and it has different colors and contours And that journey, that is actually how we make sense of the laws of nature, God, if you will, whatever it is that you consider to be truth in your life. It's, it's, there's going to be different pieces of it that sometimes you have to look at and say, how do I make sense of all of this? Scott says to his students, if you find yourself naked physically, but not emotionally naked, then you may not be safe or feel safe in that moment. And it could be for a number of reasons that you have every right to explore before you just allow yourself to engage in a physical activity that doesn't feel right. And you don't have to ever stay one more second in a situation like that. It's really freeing to hear someone actually verbalize it because like to really be in that moment and to own your body, to own your physical space, your intimacy emotionally and physically and be able to say at any moment, I I am in charge of this body. This body is on loan to me by the great creator. And I, in this moment, I'm saying no, and I'm not consenting in this moment. And you're allowed to have that change. It doesn't have to be uh, one time I made a decision and that was it type of a thing. He says to have a five word statement ready to go so that when you do feel unsafe, you can utilize it. It doesn't actually matter what the circumstances are but it's the forgiveness piece itself, learning how to forgive, let go of ego or being right or having it all make sense and just allowing for. This is the majority of what we spoke about. Scott says a great question to ask is, how can I learn how to be a more compassionate person in the universe? And he says, forgiveness is one of the ways to get there. 
all of the blessings that come after the action of forgiveness wouldn't be there until we actually do the act of forgiveness itself. It opens us up to so many other blessings and opportunities. Forgiveness is the gateway to a bigger life, which God, the universe, the Schwartz, however you want to call it, puts us here for on this planet to experience. And it sometimes gets in the way of us fulfilling our greatest potential when we put up that block and we say, I'm not going to forgive. No. Forgiveness, the act itself, must be daily, not just on a day like Yom Kippur or any other religious holiday that you decide you're going to start to forgive. Marion Williamson, his teacher for so many years, said, for 20 seconds every day, forgive everyone and everything. Such a great mantra, right? For this 20 seconds, I am going to forgive everyone, everything. For this 20 seconds, I'm going to forgive everyone and everything. Try it. Take a deep breath and try it right now and then come back. How do you feel? The action of forgiving is a muscle that must be used. It's the gateway to your largeness, to your enoughness. Try it. You're starting to feel like you're not enough. See if you can forgive one person, one thing that happened in your life, and then see if that changes things. Scott's friend said, I always thought an AIDS diagnosis would make me bigger. Instead, it showed me how big I've always been. God willing, none of us should ever be tested with such a huge disease challenge such as that. And yet we all, in our own ways, have many micro, large, difficult challenges. No one is exempt from them. To be human is to err, to have mistakes, to have difficulties sometimes brought upon us by crazy circumstances. And should we ever feel insignificant, take a look at what you've already been through, the traumas that you had in your family, maybe someone even very close to you that affected you. That itself should allow you to see how big you've always been. We are all connected and we are all a piece of the master. We are all a masterpiece. It doesn't require a crisis or diagnosis for you to be significant or even to feel significant. Forgive on a daily basis so you can cross into the sea of your enoughness, your largeness. To know you've always been this big requires two things. One, forgiveness. And two, acceptance of things as they are and how they've been. Scott's friend Robert Levitan once said, acceptance, what a beautiful word. Row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. This is acceptance. But so many of us say, I don't accept the terms this life has given me. How many times have you done that in your life? Maybe when you were younger, maybe this morning, maybe last week, or maybe a child in your life or a teenager or someone much older than you is saying it. And you shudder when you hear them say it because you, you know, usually as the outside person looking in, oh, they don't really mean that. And also, what can you do about it? My grandmother used to say, and by the way, this is the week of her yard site, so I'm happy to quote her. Batsheva Bat Yisrael, you should have a million aliyahs. Anyone who's listening to this podcast, please say amen. She used to say, my grandma Betty, my life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I deal with it. 
And when I used to hear that as a kid, I would think, what is she talking about? And now as I get older, I realize, wow, what profound words. Be in the state of acceptance as much as possible for more power. Ah, now this, said the Buddha. He quotes Ram Dasa saying, this is all grist for the mill. Scott spoke about living in Atlanta and attending a Baptist church and singing the song that has the following words in it. I need you to survive. And he said, what would the world be like if we went up to the people that are around us on the street, on a bus, in the grocery store, and we said to strangers, I need you to survive. What if we sang it? It just so happens that another point of synchronicity is that when I was filming one of my documentaries in New York City, a conversation between the African-American and Jewish communities in New York over MLK weekend at the Harlem JCC, I was standing with a beautiful woman, Alicia, and she and I sang the song that Scott Freed happens to quote from the Atlanta Baptist Church that he goes to. And it's so bizarre because I had never heard that song before I made that documentary. And I just pulled it up and I thought I would end with that song because it's so pretty. And I, I learned it on the spot. So don't judge me for uh, my musical ability in this particular song. Most people are longing for something and thus praying all the time. And I love the way Scott said it, that when someone's longing for something, it's as if they're praying. They don't have to acknowledge that they're praying, but if they long for something, if they call out, oh, I wish I had this, this, or this, they're actually praying. We can each be the answers or perhaps the bridge to helping another person get answers to their prayers. Scott also says to the students that he works with, we are not that fragile. There's a different way to handle our big, big feelings. The best way to handle someone who's speaking, and they might say a word that you consider a quote-unquote trigger word, is to say to yourself, here's what works for me, but I don't need you or the person speaking at me or to me to change or to apologize. I just want to state my truth. I don't like these words, but I get that I may not get what I want now or ever. We don't get to write all the rules in life. We get to want what we want, though. We would free ourselves up if we walked around thinking, I may not get what I want today or in this moment or next year or tomorrow, but I get to want what I want and I'm going to do whatever I can that's in my power to try to help me get there. Coming from a place of power is something like my grandmother Betty used to say. Another great saying she used to say, you can always find the bad. You got to look for the good. Thanks, Grandma Betty. And I brought up a great saying by the great Byron Katie, who always says, we should be able to have a conversation with any person at any time. 
sometimes are harder than others. And I heard Scott say during this episode, not everyone is actually looking out for your good because maybe they've been indoctrinated into a world in which they are looking to cancel or destroy, God forbid, a person just based on their religious context or where they come from or whatever race they are, which is incredibly sad. And we're seeing this come up in the news a little bit now. And it frightens me. And I would be lying if I say I I had so much faith that I, I didn't think these people had any power. And yet at the same time, I believe so much in the idea that even when someone is showing you their evil colors and they're choosing to side with evil, to be evil, to teach evil, to do horrific things, in, even in the name of, God forbid, God or a religion, we have the choice to even look at that evil in this world and see it as a part of that person's choosing. In other words, it's not their full self. It's just a part that they're choosing to tap into. And we don't have to go to the same level, the same depths of horrific evil in order to overcome them. There are so many ways to deal with what is going on right now. And yet we never want to become the evil that we see in others. We want to try to rise above it, bring light, of course, defend ourselves and others when we feel that people are endangered, but defending is different than going on the offensive. And there's a lot of work to be done. Scott says, put the power back in your hands. You can't get the blessings if you ignore them or put your arms in front of you and cross them and say, I'm not forgiving and I'm not even looking for the good because it just doesn't exist. Whatever you seek, you will find. Whatever you don't seek, you're also going to not find it as well. Whatever we are given is for our benefit, but only while we're paying attention. And finally, the beauty that you see in me is the beauty that you have in you. You spot it, you got it. Even as I was wrapping up this session with the great Scott Freed, he was able to teach me something in the very last moment. This guy is a natural teacher. He is a great speaker, and I am so honored to call him my friend. I bless you that you always stay on the side of light, and no matter how dark the world seems to be, around us. We have the courage to stand in our power, say what we need to say, and look for all the blessings. Thank you. Namaste. Shalom. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode could inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always.